Hey, hey, folks, Dave here. And Rue. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. Uh, please join us for Chapter 13 of Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Major Hyphen the Cupboard. It's a blank. It's a hyphen blank. in my book. It's blank because remember they call him blank because no one knows it. No one's a f- courageous enough to ask him his first name. So it's like blank. We don't know his first name. And that's actually significant because we don't know his first name because of just how intimidating he is. Ah, that's the first time I've heard that interpretation from you. But no, it, yeah. we, we discussed it in a previous chapter. I don't believe we have. It was literally in the chapter. I don't recall. It was in there. <laughs> it's all good. Because <laughs> we had a whole, like, we, we ke- I kept asking, why? Is that a blank? Is it something they pronounce? And then and we looked, and then suddenly it got answered in that chapter going, no one knew what his first name was. I'm going, ah, so that's why it's a blank. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Rue is um, deep in, uh, you're deep in uh, academic I've, land at the moment? Yeah, I've got a paper thing that's due, and it's been interesting so i'm going to phrase it interesting it's been difficult because finding reference images or sources for images uh, i i i love the fact that the internet has an abundance of of materials the problem is that no one cites their sources which for academic work is terrible and if you've got like tens and thousands and millions of papers to sift through to try and find an appropriate source for that information. Yeah. So I have feelings on this right now. Mm. Mm. You're, uh, you're, are you nearing the end? I just uh, can't even know. I'm, I'm don't know what I'm at. I'd lost track of time. And it was it was due, so it's overdue now, and I don't know what's going to happen. The university's has its requirements as well, and I have feelings about those because I feel that they are highly disruptive to the progress of the actual research. The point of a lot of these reports and papers is to establish and clarify the purpose, the scope of your, your project, the justification behind it and all that, or to determine whether you have an idea of, like, because people get, distracted and they go off track and all that the problem is that by having to invest time additional time in meeting these requirements and paperwork it is in itself disruptive and i don't get to actually work on the the materials that are relevant to my actual project in terms of publication and and actual analysis so it's a bit I probably also overthink it. The average person is just going to submit like, all right, here's what they want and this is what they're going to get. Whereas I go, what is it that they actually want? What do they truly mean when they ask this? And I start asking questions and, and, and others just kind of go, oh, yeah, whatever. And I go, but if I'm going to present this, then they need to understand that. And then they need to understand that. And like it, it, it's, it's not designed for people who are not neurotypical. The way that these things are set up, they're actually massively disruptive. Yeah. So yes, 
I've, eh. I've talked yeah. about that before. I think that was always my issue when I was writing my master's thesis. Is um, yeah, it's the it's the as I, I I express this, and this is no disrespect to the universities, and this is a universal thing across academics. Uh, institutions, academic institutions, I refer to this as Vogon work because from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, with the whole Vogons and don't read them poetry kind of thing, it kills, like it's the massive administrative aspects to this are really soul killing. Well, I, I was going on the other side where um, I always got notes back that you're not explaining things adequately enough yeah. for me it's just but yeah. i understand it and i try my hardest to make no, sure others what are I mean. on the same page we but. shouldn't have to explain like yes you need to justify sure yes you need to communicate your methodology and whatnot sure but the way that it's being done doesn't allow you to actually appropriately express it it doesn't they add all these, do this three-minute thesis there, do a visual data, do this this presentation there, attend at least seven workshops, attend this, attend that. You're going, I would like to actually do the work. I appreciate you're trying to build up skills in me that are relevant to this project, but I find that a lot of these things are not skills that are relevant to this project. Presenting is all good and well, but going and practice presenting on something that is nothing to, like, I would like to analyze the actual data. I would like to measure and analyze the data, first refine it, yes, the methodology, sure, that's the point of this step that I'm about to do, is to share what I'm going to, what I'm doing, and to get feedback as to whether I've considered this or whether I've considered that. That's fine, but the way it's, it's asked for, and the kind of hoops and professional development and da da da, because there's this push to make sure people are employable at the end of this, it's disruptive to the actual research work. So if the point of these degrees is to generate also and contribute towards the body of research, the structure and the way that these are being facilitated is actually disruptive to that process. Mm. That's when you have this, they're trying to meet corporate interests and mm -hmm. make things more corporate approachable. But at the same time, they're compromising, I feel, my opinion, my experience, the, the, the quality of the actual research, like to the point where someone will go stuff it. I don't want to get the qualification at the end of it. I just want to go and volunteer and do volunteer work in a research lab and then hopefully publish a book and then get money from that. Which, by the way, there's no money in academia unless you are, unless you're like, unless you're a politician who's basically in an academic setting, which I would consider certain positions in a university are very political in nature. No. Like, unless you go the corporate pathway within a university, there's no money. So people who are usually in science and research, short of those who come up with patentable ideas or are in it for the glory or get a Nobel Prize, which we know not most people will not be getting, there's no money in this. So if people are trying to do it, and if you have corporate agendas within a, a, a frame of or a field which shouldn't be driven by corporate agenda, which shouldn't be driven by money, and it's not designed to be driven by people making money off it, not really, then anyway, it just feels very cluttered. Yes, we should be looking and evaluating, and you should consider your project in terms of its relevance, its usefulness, its application, and its ethical uh, framework. But again, there's no clarity as to the extent of detail that they want. There's no clarity as to whether 
at what le- like asking the asking a person who's describing extreme scientific stuff to f- add in a lay person title description it's helpful for if you were trying to for example learn how to introduce concepts to the media whatever but get them to do that in a in a uh, like a if this was a media release design a media release for your project like change things a little bit and besides which that's why universities hire media um, folks or science communication specialists for the departments or for the university. Anyway, you tr- I, I feel they're trying to get research students to basically cover corporate research, science communication, media and grant. Like it's way too many hats. Hmm. That's why there are subspecialty roles within even a corporate setting within scientists. There's research scientists. Uh, but the, the, the cynic in me says, you know, why actually pay for all these uh, talented people when you can pay a small group less to, and have them do everything? That's what it. That's essentially what it feels like. It's like they're trying to train us for this kind of almost, uh, I want to say, abusive kind of setup. And... That's why they have atrocious quality coming out. This is pressure to publish, which is somewhat, it's reasonable that you should publish within, I think, within five to 10 years of your research project, five years preferably. But that's why we have so much literature out there that is actually, I'm going to use it's dog poop, man. There's dog poop literature that's just cluttering all the like, and it makes it the the task of a researcher and a scientist and any person who's looking at re- literature a million times harder um, because they have to sift through the poop to find little gold nuggets. It and and at the same time they put it's just it's a mess. I and, have uh, yeah, major yeah. issues, and then they cut too much out and provide no support. Hmm. Or there's a lack of clarity. So it's, 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 and, and this is, again, this is not strictly something that I'm experiencing with the research institution. This is something, these are t- things that are coming up across the board. And if you are in academia, particularly medical research, you are more likely not to be neurotypical. If you're a person who obsesses over signaling pathways and cells and transcription factors and biology to that level, I can guarantee you that proportion of people who are not neurotypical is significantly higher. Hence the whole joke that autism caused vaccines um, that makes the rounds once in a while. But because of that, having people who are an admin, this is not again, I'm not against people who are an admin, but at admin of academic institutions and people who are making decisions about the uh, the administrative nature within academic institutions lack the actual experience from the people at the f- in the field. They don't integrate the knowledge, the insights, and the experiences of people there, and they're looking at it from the framework that they're familiar with, which is generally, overwhelmingly, neurotypical, not neurodiverse. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, but that's, and this is why when I look at, when we do Catch-22, it it's, relates because here you've got the army administration with completely disconnected from the reality mm. of the field. <laughs> and that's what, you know, that the, the one doctor, um, the doctor from, from Dunbar's, uh, something uh, like Stokes. Uh, 
Yeah, the remember. other one, yeah. not Danica, the doctor no. that wasn't Danica, who's terrible, but the other doc who is, who basically is being, I mean, they're all being broken, but he's, the what's broken him is that he's not being allowed to do medical, he wasn't allowed to do medical exemptions or assessments, but they can't forbid him from doing it. So they just close the kind of situation off. And the reason being that not, none of them are medically competent to fly. Because he's actually doing his job. So they, they, the catch 20, and then the whole catch 22 situation that Danica described that, oh, if you say that you're mad, then you're not mad. But you have to come to me and tell me that something's wrong in order for me to actually say that something's wrong. Mm. And then if you come and say that you're wrong, you're not. It's not wrong because no one wants to be here. It's like, ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, uh, but uh, in the meantime, Major the Coverly, from the few times that we've encountered him, he doesn't have much tolerance for that. He just kind of does what he does because everyone's too afraid to confront him about it. Well, we've had very little. Um, the only thing I remember, I know we've encountered him before, but the only thing I remember is when he broke up the loyalty oaths um, well, because he wanted food. But it seems, yeah, he's he's got a position of uh, respect or intimidation, the either way. Mm -hmm. they're, they're terrified of him. And and just the the weird phrasing of give me eat and then give everybody eat. Maybe he's a man of few words. Maybe. You know, uh, that, that presence, yeah, I can kind of see the type of person in my mind that mm. people get out of his way and he only has to say a couple words to, um, mm. for Dresden File fans, he's a bit like Mac the bartender maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he's Odin in disguise. That's what it feels like to me. Like he might be Odin. Not Mac. I don't know who Mac is, but De Coverly. Like it's like like just one of those old grizzled gods. <laughs> if this I, was a fantasy book, yes. Yes, yes. Um, it, yes, if this was a fantasy book. But no. But actually I, I, the yeah. sad thing is yeah, this really feel the more we're reading this really feels far from a fantasy book. It, it is almost. Yes. It feels like transcription from Heller's time in the Air Force during World War Two. Yeah, it feels like he's grabbed all his diaries and just thrown them through a, a shredder. Which, which really, I think, is damning because it's just so ridiculous and yeah. so absurd and so sad. Oh, you know what? I think we've mentioned or this came up in discussion before but even the way that it's written remember in the first chapter hella was describing so so we have uh, hella describing we have um what's his name yusarian describing how they edit and do the censoring of the letters mm -hmm. i wonder if some of this is because like it's we were discussing how it might be why this is so disjointed and all over the place is part of it also is reflecting the way that those letters then when someone's reading it on the other end, feels disjointed and all over the place and context is missing and it's confusing and what's going on? Who's this again? I don't know. Um, that it feels so random. But also I wonder if he is basing this A on memory, but also maybe correspondence that he did send. Mm. But um, also like abstractly, the idea of coming back from the war probably having PTSD yes. and yeah. then recalling scenarios, it also would have that disjointed. Yeah. yeah and I think that that's that, that disjointedness of PTSD and the chaos of war and the fact that all the days kind of blur into one big thing and all that, the, the disconnect from time, there's that too. 
But I think that might be why in the first chapter, he described in fairly meticulous detail the way these letters are being modified, and that's under the clause of Catch-22. That's what it was called. So it feels like this whole book is a giant, like as if it was a giant letter or a collection of letters that are just all over the place. So so Major de Coverley's first name might be redacted as well? Well, that <laughs> it's already, it is redacted because they don't know what it is. No one's asked him. But yes, also th- 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 that could be the way that Usarian would randomly pick something and just remove it. And then the context was completely all over the place. There's, there's layers and layers and layers to this, which are interesting. Chapter 13, Major de Coverley. Moving the bomb line did not fool the Germans, but it did fool Major de Coverley, who packed his musset bag, commandeered an airplane, and under the impression that Florence too had been captured by the Allies, had himself flown to that city to rent two apartments for the officers and the enlisted men in the squadron to use on rest leaves. He had still not returned by the time Yasserian jumped back outside Major Major's office and wondered whom to appeal to next for help. Major de Coverley was a splendid, awe-inspiring, grave old man with a massive leonine head and an angry shock of wild white hair that raged like a blizzard around his stern, patriarchal face. His duties as squadron executive officer did consist entirely, as both Doc Danica and Major Major had conjectured, of pitching horseshoes, kidnapping Italian laborers, and renting apartments for the enlisted men and officers to use on rest leaves, and he excelled at all three. Each time the fall of a city like Naples, Rome, or Florence seemed imminent, Major de Coverley would pack his musset bag, commandeer an airplane and a pilot, and have himself flown away, accomplishing all this without uttering a word by the sheer force of his solemn, domineering visage and the preemptory gestures of his wrinkled finger. A day or two after the city fell, he would be back with leases on two large and luxurious apartments there, one for the officers and one for the enlisted men, both already staffed with competent, jolly cooks and maids. A few days after that, newspapers would appear throughout the world with photographs of the first American soldiers bludgeoning their way into the shattered city through rubble and smoke. Inevitably, Major de Coverley was among them, seated straight as a ramrod in a jeep he had obtained from somewhere, glancing neither right nor left as the artillery fire burst about his invincible head and live young infantrymen with carbines went loping up along the sidewalks in the shelter of burning buildings or fell dead in doorways. He seemed eternally indestructible as he sat there surrounded by danger, his features molded firmly into that same fierce, regal, just, and forbidding countenance which was recognized and revered by every man in the squadron. To German intelligence, Major de Coverley was a vexatious enigma. Not one of the hundreds of American prisoners would ever supply any concrete information about the elderly white-haired officer with the gnarled and menacing brow and blazing powerful eyes who seemed to spearhead every important advance so fearlessly and successfully. To American authorities, his identity was equally perplexing. A whole regiment of crack CID men had been thrown into the front lines to find out who he was, while a battalion of combat-hardened public relations officers stood on red alert 24 hours a day with orders to begin publicizing him the moment he was located. 
In Rome, Major de Coverley had outdone himself with the apartments. For the officers who arrived in groups of four or five, there was an immense double room for each in a new white stone building with three spacious bathrooms with walls of shimmering aquamarine tile and one skinny maid named Michaela who tittered at everything and kept the apartment in spotless order. On the landing below lived the obsequious owners. On the landing above lived the beautiful, rich, black-haired countess and her beautiful, rich, black-haired daughter-in-law, both of whom would put out only for Nately, who was too shy to want them, and for Arfie, who was too stuffy to take them, and tried to dissuade them from ever putting out for anyone but their husbands, who had chosen to remain in the north with the family's business interests. They're really a couple of good kids, Arfie confided earnestly to Yasarian, whose recurring dream it was to have the nude milk-white female bodies of both these beautiful, rich, black-haired good kids lying stretched out in bed erotically with him at the same time. The enlisted men descended upon Rome in gangs of twelve or more with gargantuan appetites and heavy crates filled with canned food for the women to cook and served to them in the dining room of their own apartment on the sixth floor of a red brick building with a clinking elevator. There was always more activity at the enlisted men's place. There were always more enlisted men to begin with, and more women to cook and serve and sweep and scrub, and then there were always the gay and silly sensual young girls that Yesarian had found and brought there, and those that the sleepy enlisted men returning to Pianosa after their exhausting seven-day debacle had brought there on their own and were leaving behind for whoever wanted them next. <laughs> yes, Rubik, I'm having, like I'm having a sour-faced cool, expression. No, I'm having what's the name? Brave New World flashbacks. But yes, the yeah. girls had shelter and food for as long as they wanted to stay. All they had to do in return was hump any of the men who asked them to, which seemed to make everything just about perfect for them. <laughs> I mean, I'm not judging the girls here. No, but I judge the guys. But yes. Every fourth day or so, Hungry Joe came crashing in like a man in torment, hoarse, wild, and frenetic, if he had been unlucky enough to finish his missions again and was flying the courier ship. Most times, he slept at the enlisted men's apartment. Nobody was certain how many rooms Major de Coverley had rented, not even the stout, black, bodiced woman in corsets on the first floor from whom he had rented them. They covered the whole top floor, and Yasarian knew they extended down to the fifth floor as well, for it was in Snowden's room on the fifth floor that he had finally found the maid in the lime-colored panties with a dust mop the day after Bologna, after Hungry Joe had discovered him in bed with Luciana at the officer's apartment that same morning and had gone running like a fiend for his camera. Remember, uh, Hungry Joe likes taking pictures of naked That's women. That's right. Yes, and he they never really put out for him other than taking having this the picture taken, I think, or they, it's a bit complicated. And that little tidbit tells us that at least the Assyrian and Hungry Joe survived Bologna. Yes. The maid in the lime-colored panties was a cheerful, fat, obliging woman in her mid-thirties with squashy thighs and swaying hams in lime-colored panties that she was always rolling off for any man who wanted her. She had a plain, broad face and was the most virtuous woman alive. She laid for everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or place of national origin, denoting herself sociably as an act of hospitality, 
procrastinating not even for the moment it might take to discard the cloth or broom or dust mop she was clutching at the time she was grabbed. Her allure stemmed from her accessibility, like Mount Everest. She was there, and the men climbed on top of her each time they felt the urge. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Mount Everest rhymes with syphilis. But yeah. <laughs> Why? Because it was there. It's so weird. Yep. Yesarian was in love with the maid in the lime-colored panties because she seemed to be the only woman left he could make love to without falling in love with. Even the bald-headed girl in Sicily still evoked in him strong sensations of pity, tenderness, uh, and regret. Sorry, pointing out, there's a catch-22 in that sentence. Ysarian oh. was in love with the maid with the lime-colored panties because she's the only woman left he could make love to without falling in love with. So yeah. he was in love. I, I, this isn't the first time we've had some no, weirdness around Ysarian's professions of love. Like there was the um, the wife of the the guy who was in charge of parades back at the cadet training, plus um, her friend. Well, Ysarian loved them both. And in the first chapter, he fell in love with the chaplain. Yeah, interesting. So I think there's there's something about Ysarian anyway. We'll find out. Different different kinds of love, maybe. Or maybe. you're right, it's just yet another catch-22. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Despite the multiple perils to which Major Decavoli exposed himself each time he rented apartments, his only injury had occurred, ironically enough, while he was leading the triumphal procession into the open city of Rome, where he was wounded in the eye by a flower fired at him from close range by a seedy, cackling, intoxicated old man who, like Satan himself, had been bounded up on Major de Coverley's car with malicious glee, seized him roughly and contemptuously by his venerable white head, and kissed him mockingly on each cheek with a mouth reeking with sour fumes of wine, cheese, and garlic, before dropping back into the joyous, celebrating throngs with a hollow, dry, excoriating laugh. I want to say that's an echoing kind of thing, but I don't know. It's interesting how it's being written, like, with this bitterness and anger. <laughs> it is a bit, like, the, the choice of words. But, it's also, it's also like, it's not giving me a chance to break. It's kind of this and this and this and this yeah, and but this. It's like, <laughs> it's like a seedy cackling and talk. So, like, in reality... Someone was excited and happy that there was they were being freed, throws a flower, and then... Runs up like, and kisses him. Yeah, you can't tell. You can't tell if it's someone who's genuinely happy at them coming and freeing Rome, or if it, like, it's, it's one of those, like, the way it's written is like he's, he's actually... I don't know, it's confusing. M malicious joy. No. It, like, I don't even know if it's that. It's the way it's written is that they don't actually want them there, but they're there. But then it, it's describing a situation that is not sad, it, but with anger. Like, it's weird. It's a bit twisted. But yeah. Maybe in um, war, there's no, there's no place well, for happiness. No, I think it's the way it's written. Triumphal procession. It's because he was wounded in the eye by a flower that it's being written as though it's like this man was terrible and he didn't actually want him. Like it was malicious. It was intentional. The guy, the, well, there's a lack of, you know what I mean? And and I think it's also um, built up because, yeah, uh, he's at the front of a procession 
which he's always at the front of these processions, even though he's not part of the fighting force, which confuses both the enemy and the people at home. And he's just there to go buying apartments. That's why it said, yeah, the yeah, only injury yeah, he ever some... sustained was when he was going to buy an apartment. <laughs> yeah, so, so the same way, the same way that he, um, yeah, so it's, it's the same way that he doesn't fit into, he He's there for a completely different purpose, and and he always gets photographed in a way that it looks like he's the person leading the the charge and that he's in charge. But the same way that the intent, the way those intentions of the flower being thrown and the man hugging and kissing him are twisted because mm. no, he must he was not there for that purpose. He was there malicious purpose. So it's like the same way that Major Decavalli's intentions and purposes when he's captured on that picture is different to what's actually going on. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a weird little layer there. Well and, you know, if um I was like a respected major and I lost my eye the story I'd have to tell, I'd want it to be more than, oh, it was an accident because a guy threw a flower at me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. There's a little bit of that. It's like, he needs to be intimidating. We need so, to keep so this what, character intimidating. Yeah. What I'm saying is this story had to stem from somewhere. Yeah. This, oh, that's terrible. It's like, you should have seen the other guy. But yeah. <laughs> he disappeared into the throng. But yes. So um, there Major de Coverly, a Spartan in adversity, did not flinch once throughout the whole hideous ordeal, and not until he had returned to Pianosa, his business in Rome completed, did he seek medical attention for his wound. He resolved to remain binocular and specified to Doc Danica that his eye patch be transparent so that he could continue pitching horseshoes, kidnapping Italian laborers, and renting apartments with unimpaired vision. To the men in the squadron, Major de Coverley was a colossus, although they never dared tell him so. The only one who ever did dare address him was Milo Minderbinder, who approached the horseshoe pitching pit with a hard-boiled egg his second week in the squadron and held it aloft for Major de Coverley to see. Major de Coverley straightened with astonishment at Milo's effrontery and concentrated upon him the full fury of his storming countenance with its rugged overhang of gullied forehead and huge crag of a humpback nose that came charging out of his face wrathfully like a big ten fullback. Milo stood his ground, taking shelter behind the hard-boiled egg raised protectively before his face like a magic charm. In time, the gale began to subside, and the danger passed. What is that? Major de Coverley demanded at last. An egg, Milo answered. What kind of an egg? Major de Coverley demanded. A hard-boiled egg, Milo answered. What kind of a hard-boiled egg? Major de Coverley demanded. A fresh hard-boiled egg, Milo answered. Where did the fresh egg come from? Major de Coverley demanded. <laughs> wow. From a chicken, Milo answered. Where is the chicken? Major de Coverley demanded. The chicken is in Malta, Milo answered. How many chickens are there in Malta? Enough chickens to lay fresh eggs for every officer in the squadron at five cents apiece from the mess fund, Milo answered. I have a weakness for fresh eggs, Major de Coverley confessed. If someone put a plane at my disposal, I could fly down there once a week in a squadron plane and bring back all the fresh eggs we need, Milo answered. After all, Malta's not so far away. <laughs> yep. 
Malta is not so far away, Major DeCuffley observed. You could probably fly down there once a week in a squadron plane and bring back all the fresh eggs we need. <laughs> oh, God. Yep. <clears throat> yes, Milo agreed. I suppose I could do that if someone wanted me to and put a plane at my disposal. I like my fresh eggs fried, Major DeCuffley remembered, in fresh butter. I can find all the fresh butter we need in Sicily for 25 cents a pound, Milo answered. 25 cents a pound for fresh butter is a good buy. There's enough money in the mess fund for butter too, and we could probably sell some to the other squadrons at a profit and get back most of what we pay for our own. What's your name, son? asked Major DeCoverly. My name is Milo Minderbinder, sir. I am 27 years old. You're a good mess officer, Milo. I'm not the mess officer, sir. You're a good mess officer, Milo. Thank you, sir. I'll do everything in my power to be a good mess officer. Bless you, my boy. Have a horseshoe. Thank you, sir. What should I do with it? Throw it. Away. At the peg there. Then pick it up and throw it at this peg. It's a game, see? You get the horseshoe back. Yes, sir. I see. How much are horseshoes selling for? <laughs> It's it's like it's like that meeting of uh, the immovable force, the unstoppable object. <laughs> wow. Uh, the smell of a fresh egg snapping exotically in a pool of fresh butter carried a long way on the Mediterranean trade winds, and brought General Dreidel racing back with a voracious appetite, accompanied by his nurse, who accompanied him everywhere, and his son-in-law, Colonel Mudis. In the beginning, General Dreidel devoured all his meals in Milo's mess hall. Then the other three squadrons in Colonel Cathcart's group turned their mess halls over to Milo and gave him an airplane and a pilot each so he could buy fresh eggs and fresh butter for them too. Milo's planes shuttled back and forth seven days a week as every officer in the four squadrons began devouring fresh eggs in an insatiable orgy of fresh egg eating. General Dreidel devoured fresh eggs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Between meals, he devoured more fresh eggs, until Milo located abundant sources of fresh veal, beef, duck, baby lamb chops, mushroom caps, broccoli, South African rock lobster tails, shrimp, hams, puddings, grapes, ice cream, strawberries, and artichokes. There were three other bomb groups in General Dreidel's combat wing, and they each jealously dispatched their own planes to Malta for fresh eggs, but discovered that fresh eggs were selling there for seven cents apiece. Since they could buy them from Milo for five cents apiece, it made more sense to turn over their mess halls to his syndicate too, and give him the planes and pilots needed to ferry in all the other good food he promised to supply as well. So I think I figured out what's, in terms of Milo and how he's making money, He's using the funds of the the army to buy the eggs. And then he's charging squadrons for it, yeah. He's charging squadrons five cents a piece to, to buy them off him. Yeah, because it's not his money. So he's investing the money of our, which, I mean, he was careful to how he phrased it around um, Ysarian, but I think that's what's been going on maybe. And, and it, it makes me think back to our discussion. We, we thought he was foolish and didn't understand economics, but I guess he did. Yeah, he's just, it's just, he, he's corrupt. He's corrupt. But also, he was indicating that that would be like stealing from the army. But then he said, like, but really, once the eggs have left the thing, 
once they've arrived, they're anyone's eggs, aren't they? Like, yeah, he's very he's very able to because he can a- allocate it. Yeah, he can allocate it to whom he wants. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, now it all makes sense. Okay. Everyone was elated with this turn of events, most of all Colonel Cathcart, who was convinced he had won a feather in his cap. He greeted Milo jovially each time they met, and in an excess of contrite generosity, impulsively recommended Major Major for promotion. The recommendation was rejected at once at 27th Air Force Headquarters by ex-PFC Wintergreen, who scribbled a brusque, unsigned reminder that the Army had only one major, 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 major. It did not intend to lose him by promotion just to please Colonel Cathcart. Colonel Cathcart was stung by the blunt rebuke and skulked guiltily about his room in smarting repudiation. He blamed Major Major for his black eye and decided to bust him down to lieutenant that very same day. They probably won't let you, Colonel Corn remarked with a condescending smile, savoring the situation, for precisely the same reasons that they wouldn't let you promote him. Besides, you'd certainly look foolish trying to bust him down to lieutenant right after you tried to promote him to my rank. Colonel Cathcart felt hemmed in on every side. He had been much more successful in obtaining a medal for Yesarian after the debacle of Ferreira, when the bridge spanning the Po was still standing undamaged seven days after Colonel Cathcart had volunteered to destroy it. Because remember, that was the mission where I think those he was just Yesarian just wanted to get out of there. He managed to save the squadron and bomb, but it just he was like, I don't know if we hit the target. We're going to have to come back if we haven't hit the target kind of situation. Nine missions his men had flown there in six days, and the bridge was not demolished until the tenth mission on the seventh day, when Yesarian killed Kraft and his crew by taking his flight of six planes in over the target a second uh, time. Yeah. Yesarian came in carefully on his second bomb run because he was brave then. He buried his head in his bomb site until his bombs were away. When he looked up, everything inside the ship was suffused in a weird orange glow. At first, he thought that his own plane was on fire. He then spied the plane with the burning engine directly above him and screamed to McWatt through the intercom to turn left hard. A second later, the wing of Kraft's plane blew off. The flaming wreck dropped, first the fuselage, then the spinning wing, while a shower of tiny metal fragments began tap dancing on the roof of the Assyrian's own plane, and the incessant ka-chung, ka-chung, ka-chung of the flak was still thumping all around him. So going back, mm-hmm. so this was the time where so this is way back when this is so one of the earlier missions where he flew, and because he, they hadn't hit the target, they had to return. So he brought the squadron back and made them go back and do the whole thing again. And this is where Kraft got it. Yeah, and Kraft hit it. Okay. Uh, wow, it's just the tone change, right? We've gone <laughs> from this almost silly back and forth and jovial and there's good food and there's homes and apartments and da 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 to oh this is why Yusarian is the way he is right at right after that fun little bit about we can't promote or demote major 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 because we only have one of him yeah so this is how he became the squadron leader yeah, uh, well, yeah, there, there's that line about he was still brave at this point. <laughs> no, but this is how, how Major, 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 Major became the squadron leader. Mm. Yeah. Because he couldn't promote him, he couldn't demote him, so he's like, why, Yusarian can't be the squadron leader, you've got to be it. Kind of, I think he was a squadron leader, I can't remember. 
Uh, back on the ground, every eye watched grimly as he walked in dull dejection up to Captain Black outside the green clapboard briefing room to make his intelligence report and learn that Colonel Cathcart and Colonel Korn were waiting to speak to him inside. Major Danby stood barring the door, waving everyone else away in ashen silence. Yasarian was leaden with fatigue and longed to remove his sticky clothing. He stepped into the briefing room with mixed emotions, uncertain how he was supposed to feel about Kraft and the others, for they had all died in the distance of a mute and secluded agony at a moment when he was up to his own ass in the same vile, excruciating dilemma of duty and damnation. Colonel Cathcart, on the other hand, was all broken up by the event. Twice, he asked. I would have missed it the first time, Yossarian replied softly, his face lowered. Their voices echoed slightly in the long, narrow bungalow. But twice, Colonel Cathcart repeated in vivid disbelief. I would have missed it the first time, Yossarian repeated. But Kraft would be alive, and the bridge would still be up. A trained bombardier is supposed to drop his bombs the first time, Colonel Cathcart reminded him. The other five bombardiers dropped their bombs the first time. And missed the target, Yossarian said. We'd have had to go back there again. And maybe you would have gotten it the first time then. And maybe I wouldn't have gotten it at all. But maybe there mm. wouldn't have been any losses. And maybe there would have been more losses with the bridge still maybes. left standing. Maybe, 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 maybe. Huh. It's like... Yeah. Mm. I thought you wanted the bridge destroyed. Don't contradict me, Colonel Cathcart said. We're all in enough trouble. I'm not contradicting you, sir. Yes, you are. Even that's a contradiction. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Colonel Cathcart cracked his knuckles violently. Colonel that Korn. was a contradiction. The other ones weren't, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Colonel Korn, a stocky, dark, flaccid man with a shapeless paunch, sat completely relaxed on one of the benches in the front row, his hands clasped comfortably over the top of his bald and swarthy head. His eyes were amused behind his glinting, rimless spectacles. We're trying to be perfectly objective about this, he prompted Colonel Cathcart. We're trying to be perfectly objective about this, Colonel Cathcart said to Yasarian with the zeal of sudden inspiration. It's not that I'm being sentimental or anything. I don't give a damn about the men or the airplane. It's just that it looks so lousy on the report. How am I going to cover up something like this in the report? Why don't you give me a medal, Yasarian suggested timidly. For going around twice? You gave one to Hungry Joe when he cracked up that airplane by mistake. Colonel Cathcart snickered ruefully. You'll be lucky if we don't give you a court-martial. But I got the bridge the second time around, Yossarian protested. I thought you wanted the bridge destroyed. Oh, I don't know what I wanted, Colonel Cathcart cried out in exasperation. Look, of course I wanted the bridge destroyed. That bridge has been a source of trouble to me ever since I decided to send you men out to get it. But why couldn't you do it the first time? I didn't have enough time. My navigator wasn't sure we had the right city. The right city? Colonel Cathcart was baffled. Are you trying to blame it all on Arfie now? No, sir. It was my mistake for letting him distract me. All I'm <laughs> trying to say is that I'm not infallible. Nobody is infallible, Colonel Cathcart said sharply, and then continued vaguely with an afterthought. Nobody is indispensable, either. There was no rebuttal. Colonel Korn stretched sluggishly. We've got to reach a decision, he observed casually to Colonel Cathcart. We've got to reach a decision, Colonel Cathcart said to Yossarian, and it's all your fault. Why did you have to go around twice? Why couldn't you drop your bombs the first time like all the others? I would have missed the first time. 
It seems to me that we're going around twice, Colonel Korn interrupted with a chuckle. But what are we going to do? Colonel Cathcart exclaimed with distress. The others are all waiting outside. Why don't we give him a medal? Colonel Korn proposed. For going around twice? What can we give him a medal for? For going around twice, Colonel Korn answered with a reflective, self-satisfied smile. After all, I suppose it did take a lot of courage to go over that target a second time with no other planes around to divert the anti-aircraft fire. And he did hit the bridge. You know, that might be the answer, to act boastfully about something we ought to be ashamed of. That's a trick that never seems to fail. No, it doesn't, um, does it? In my Kindle, that's underlined by many, 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 many people. (laughs) Yes. I can understand why. Let me just read that again. You know, that might be the answer. To act boastfully about something we ought to be ashamed of. That's a trick that never seems to fail. Do you think it will work? I'm sure it will. And let's promote him to captain too, just to make certain. (laughs) Oh, God. This is failing upward. Yep. Let's protect ourselves. Just... Just push on with the ranks. <laughs> don't you think that's going a bit farther than we have to? No, I don't think so. It's best to play safe, and a captain's not much difference. All right, Colonel Cathcart decided. We'll give him a medal for being brave enough to go around over the target twice, and we'll make him a captain too. Colonel Korn reached for his hat. Exit smiling, he joked, and put his arm around Yusserian's shoulders as they stepped outside the door. So with Korn... He's the the brains here. Definitely isn't Cathcart. Oh no, Cathcart we already knew was he kid yeah, no, he's bad. And 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 I like that he was so honest though, in the middle of that whole rigmarole, he's like, Look, I don't really care about the bridge or the men, it's just gonna look bad on the report. Yeah. When it I uh. <laughs> And I, the reason it looked bad on the report is like why did he go back why didn't he drop hit it the first time around? So well he didn't drop the bombs because they wouldn't have hit it the first time around because the navigator screwed up. And Cathcart was the one that wanted that bridge destroyed anyway. Yeah. So it was the, was it, that the it, one where like they did multiple takes of that mission? Yes. This is like a week. He said, I'll get it down in, in 24 hours. And it was like a week later. Hmm. Um, oof. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, um, Okay. Oh, and you're right. That did take quite the turn. The yeah, the, the first half tone. of that chapter, or at least the first chunk, was very lighthearted, and then it's, then it's, that was something. We learned a little more about Major Decovely. We also discovered how Milo ended up with the squadron. Yeah, um, I'm the the most shocked I am actually is that I had him all wrong. I th- I thought he wasn't. He was yeah. foolish. Didn't know also, what he was a doing. Syndicate. And turns out he was really clever about it. He's just unscrupulous and corrupt. Yes. I mean, that was mentioned that he had screwed. He was a bit funny. I don't know. It's, in, it's also probably going to help that he's got the Carverly. Yeah, it's, it's so weird how... Um, and, and you know, that that meeting almost didn't go well, but he, 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 he hid behind his egg. <laughs> yeah. Curious, curious. I think uh, this is also why Milo likes or likes or is is respect like respects Yusarian because he can't he can't work around him like he can't run circles around him kind of situation. Yeah, um, Yusarian is very straightforward. E- even even if 
even if it seems odd, he, he's telling you exactly how he's feeling, what what he's thinking. Yeah. Although he didn't at the beginning during, mm-hmm. uh, he, he actually told uh, Clevenger not to express his thing because that's not going to go well. Yeah. So he knows, he knows enough to like, I think we're getting, we're getting bits of Yossarian when he's at the point where he does just does not give a fart. Um, like he doesn't care anymore. Um, or he's, he's just like, wants to get out of there. So I think, yeah, and I think like everyone else, he, you know, like when we saw him in the hospital, he was probably already broken by that point. But like yeah. when he's talking to Colonel Cathcart in after that mission, he yeah. seems like he's more trying to defend himself and well, a little not meek. Even defend himself. He was feeling he's. You could tell he was feeling bad about the fact that craft. Like he was feeling the loss. Of, yeah. Yeah, um, but at the same time. I don't know. There's some like it's it, it was a case of but I don't understand. This is what you wanted. He he didn't quite grasp the catch twenty two nature of what's going on. And I think this is where it, it it's it kicked in. This was the mission that made him realize the catch twenty two of you did the th- we want you to do the thing, but we don't want you do it to do it in a way that makes us look bad. <laughs> but what we're gonna do is we're gonna just fail up or we're gonna like Yes cover it by saying that oh it's actually brave and da 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 it's like it's 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 um that's the thing where the the way to get get past in fact de Cavalli and corn know how to get past catch 22 yeah they seem very self-assured and comfortable in their positions it's it's assurance but also they just kind of go how can we do this how can we frame this so corn knows how to reframe things in a way to say that's how we'll frame it, and this is how we'll make this work. So there's no catch twenty two involved, and then the uh, because they should be by all rights. The fact that he didn't release the bomb the first round, that's a failure. And and did did you notice at least it, it, it kind of I was aware of in because that was kind of a tense scene with Cathcart and Yasarian. Yes, and they're both like Cathcart is mad, Yasarian is. Still, I mean, he it's right after the mission, so he's probably got everything running around in his brain, and yeah. he's being attacked for letting... He just let his man die, even though he succeeded at the mission, but he did it the wrong way. So there's all these competing problems, and every time Colonel Korn interjects, it seems like it's jovial. Like, he's, he's perfectly calm, and he's got a smile. It's like, I understand the ridiculousness of this whole situation, so I, I'm going to have to be the one that navigates it, and I've done yeah. this before. Yeah, so we've got, well, the thing is, we've got Korn, we've got Milo, I would argue it is also, Milo knows how to make Catch-22 work for him, because it is Catch-22 that the army has bought these eggs already, but once the person has them distributed by the mess officer, then you can't, like, then the army no longer has them. They no longer belong to the army, so the person can do what they want with it. And even more insidious now, he's commandeering army property, the planes and the fuel to go yep. get more yep. product to sell to the officers to make more money for himself. Yeah. So he knows how to work Catch-22. So, in fact, I'd say that Chapter 13 is someone who's just being affected by it, how Korn navigates it and manages to to frame things, how DeCoverly just straight up ignores it, he just ignores things and does whatever he needs to do to do it. He, he knows what his mission is and he does it. And to the bafflement of everyone else, 
Exactly, because he's just doing he's doing it. He just no idea how. And Milo, in the meantime, understands how it works and then uses it because he knows how to, like, he understands how how to the loop, how to to use the loop for his advantage. These are all people who think. In the meantime, Yasarian is has just this is the moment where Yasarian discovers an aspect to Catch Twenty Two, like the first con- confrontation with Catch Twenty Two. I also like the idea that um, Cathcart on the surface seems like he's comfortable and he understands how to play the game. But I think this chapter I'm realizing that, no, he's just got his head above water. He's trying to play the game, but it's not working for him. No, exactly. It's a mess. Like he may Fascinating. be he may be safe at the moment, but it feels like at least where he is, the bottom could fall out at any point, mainly because yeah. no one above or below likes him. No. I think Dreedle hates him. I don't know if he has a friend. No, I don't think he does. I think Corrin finds him helpful and amusing. It's it's it, the thing is, if something goes wrong, Corrin can deflect it and say it's Cathcart's fault. Yeah. Yeah. So the the, the brains behind the thing is actually Corrin, but it's not like Cathcart can turn around saying, "Well, I wasn't in charge." So, well, yeah, actually, you are. It, it it I guess even though it it does rankle me, it's good to have a scapegoat. It's terrible, but yeah. So yes, yeah, fascinating. Um, I'm interested. I think uh, I just saw the first first uh, words, like the first five words of the next chapter, which means Bologna. So Bologna is next chapter is getting a mention again. We're going back to lunch meat. Yes. So the beginning of the chapter, parts of it were after Bologna. Mm-hmm. So Rome is after Bologna. And I, I don't know if Rome was... But there was just that short bit about um, Yasarian and Hungry Joe hanging out in no, the apartments. Yeah, they was, well, they were in the one of the apartments, yes. One of the apartments. Uh, so the Hungry Joe and Yasarian were in one of the apartments. It was the Rome apartment. The the lady with the lime-colored panties. Yes. So that's that's Rome. So they were in Rome after things. So Hungry Joe and so, yeah, this is this is like a puzzle. <laughs> it really is. Um, but yes, in the meantime, I have to continue puzzling around my essay, so I'm going to go soon. Yeah, when we start, Rue's like, here is the time we have. Let's make this work. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I need to go. But yes. Thank you for joining us this week, folks. Uh, the music at the top of the podcast is Soap Runs by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Henry Gregson-Williams. Music at the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo. That's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. You can find our podcast at S-M-B-S-L-T podcast, both on Twitter and Facebook. And if you add an at gmail.com, you can email us and we are happy to get your feedback. Would love some reviews on Apple podcasts, please, if if you can. Otherwise, just any feedback is, is always appreciated. Mm. So thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, stay safe, uh, enjoy your reading, and we'll see you next week. Bye.